Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. Imagine you're a Jewish person during World War II, but you're safely in bed, snug under the covers, an ocean away from Nazi Germany, secure in the vastness of Canada. Would you march into the teeth of the Third Reich, risking your life to stare down Hitler's war machine, all for a country that didn't consider you a full and loyal citizen? Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, and a special tip of the hat to everybody watching this adventure into the past via our YouTube channel. In this episode, we're going to travel back to meet the heroes that Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King said faced a double threat from Axis evil. Not just fascism, but their survival as a people. Our guide in this journey is journalist Ellen Bessner. She's a professor at Centennial College, and she's the author of Double Threat, Canadian Jews, the Military, and World War II. Although Canada had shut its doors to Jews in Europe, refugees desperate to escape the rising tide of anti-Semitism. And while those already in Canada found many doors to jobs and places in university slammed in their faces, when war came, huge numbers, humbling numbers really, answered the call to defend their country, defying bigotry and earning valor that had been shamefully forgotten until today's guest decided to tell their stories. Ellen Bessner hosts the CJN Daily, which is a podcast from the Canadian Jewish News. You could find that linked at the historyauthor.com page for this episode, or you can visit her at ellenbessner.com. That's Ellen spelled I-N, by the way. And you can track her down on all the major social media sites. Those are Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn where you can find me as well. All right, now that we've been briefed on our mission, let's join Ellen Bessner and meet the Jewish-Canadian soldiers who faced history's darkest double threat. And here we are with Ellen Bessner. She's author of Double Threat, Canadian Jews, the Military, and World War II. Welcome to the show, Ellen. It's great to be here. Nice to meet you. Well, it's certainly great to meet you in person. We spoke back and forth. I was really humbled that you reached out to me with your journalism background and that somebody recommended me to you to come on. Then I get the book Double Threat. And right from the beginning, it's such an inspiring story. It's a book that if I picked it up off a shelf, I would want to take it home. I, in the old days when you had to go to a shelf and you didn't have Amazon, right? You'd go through the bookstore and you'd grab a book. It would catch your eye. Then I'd end up there at the front desk and I'd be purchasing a bunch of them. That's how this book is. And especially enjoyable is that it starts off as your story, you tell us that epitaph that you see carved into a headstone. Let's start there. That headstone has that epitaph. Why don't you read it to us? I think you're going to show us a picture of it and we can see what it looks like. How does that soldier's sacrifice inspire this book? Well, thank you so much for um, allowing me to share this uh, event, which literally changed my life for the last 10 years. And um, I, if you will, I'll 
show you the, the fellow and tell you a little bit about it. But first, let's set the scene. So 2011, my family and I, uh, with my kids and my husband, uh, we went to Normandy uh, on a trip. They were young teenagers. They weren't interested. My husband and I are history buffs. So we went to the Canadian War Cemetery in Normandy, which is uh, in Juneau Beach, which was the Canadians landed in Juneau Beach. The Americans landed farther down the coast, of course, and the British, of course, on Sword Beach. So when you went to the graveyard, it's called the Canadian Benny-sur-Mer War Cemetery. And there was 2,048 graves. And it was a gray day. Actually, it was July 11th, you know, 2011. So around the same time as we're doing this interview. And it was raining and it was gray. And we got out. It was very moody and very evocative. And for Jewish people, when you go to a cemetery, of course, you look at the entire graves and you look at the names and how young they were. And Canadian war cemeteries are different than the Americans because all the stones are this sort of an oval and they're made with Portland marble. And uh, then the engravings are what's different, whether there's the tombstone with a cross or the tombstone with the Star of David. Um, so we looked for the Stars of David because that's what Jewish people do. When you go to a cemetery, you're supposed to customarily take pebbles from either from bringing them from some significant place of your own, from home or you know a cottage if it's somebody you know, or you grab some from the parking lot and you visit the tombstones and you put pebbles on the Jewish graves to tell them you were there. And it's different. We don't do flowers. I mean, we do flowers afterwards, but for visiting, because flowers blow away, it's customary that you don't have anything impermanent. So we walked around and we looked at all the graves and then we found 18 Jewish graves, which out of 2000. And so, you know, I had no clue a little bit about World War II, of course, but uh, or the Second World War, as we call it in Canada the British way. But, you know, we started to see last names, Friedman, uh, you know, um, you know, names that I know from Canada, they're very obviously, you know, contemporary names, my grandparents, my people we heard of. And then this one grave was G. Melt, M-E-L-T-Z. Uh, it said he was bombardier, uh, which means he was in the artillery. Uh, he was 25. He died July 8th, 1944, or he was killed July 8th, 1944 from Toronto. And the Star of David. And then the typical, there's six, there's some Jewish lettering that has to go on as well, if the family wants. And that was amazing. And then, but like you're wondering, oh, who is this G Melt and how did he end up dying July 8th? I was curious because there's nothing in the cemeteries in the, in the Commonwealth War Grave cemeteries. There's like a little book at the front. If you've ever been to these graves around the world on battlefields, there's like a little plastic cover of this like mimeograph photocopied which has you know basically one line on each person where the graves are it literally has nothing uh that's something that we should talk about in the future about how memorials should be changed for modern modern people to visit then i'm going to show you this right now i'm going to share my screen and you see this grave okay there is, you can see the grave okay so it's got this canadian flag they're all the same uh then they have his name and then they have the star of david and then they have the lettering which says in hebrew may his soul be bound up in the bonds of eternal life. And underneath there, with covered almost by flowers, is this amazing epitaph, which literally Dean leapt out from the grave. It was 70 years since uh, you know, he had been killed, but when I was there, it shook me to my core. And I said, oh my God, I know, I, this is why Jewish people in Canada, so this is a cemetery that he, um, and he's kind of in the middle, near the cross. And this is what it said. My husband took the picture. He died 
Deeply mourned by his wife and family, he died, so Jewry shall suffer no more. And I went, oh my God, like I still get goosebumps even today. Because this was the reason why Jewish soldiers, you know, airmen and sailors went to war in a war that was, as you mentioned, a double threat, which we'll talk about why uh, in a minute. Uh, they risked their lives at great personal risk in a world that was anti-Semitic at the time, especially in Canada, but of course on the battlefield if they get captured right by the Nazis, they were in big, big danger, great danger. And this was what his family put on George Meltz's tombstone. And this is George. I only knew this later once I started researching. Okay, so I came home and I'm like, I got to Google who this person is and what, how did he end up in a graveyard in Normandy in World War II? And it turns out that George Meltz lived, his, uh, lived in Toronto. He was um, the baby of the family. They had 10 kids. They were refugee immigrants from Eastern Europe. They came to Canada in the uh, 20s for a better life, uh, escaping pogroms in Russia and Lithuania, of course, that area. And um, he was a truck driver. He made 25 bucks a week, which was a lot in those days, right? And he, he, was, um, he went to, to serve. Uh, and this is Trudy. Trudy was his British war bride. She, he met her when he was overseas because Canadians went to England for, you know, many years before they got to go do anything. <laughs> so because Canada entered the war in 1939, the same as the British and, and you know, the other uh, allied countries. Uh, you guys came later. And so they did a lot of, uh, you know, training and then they went to the Jewish dances and they, they met. She was a, a, a Russian immigrant's daughter. She was 17 when they met. He was 23. They got married when she was 18. He waited for her to grow up. They got married in England, in London, in a synagogue. Seven months later, he was in a cemetery and she was a widow after D-Day. And it was Trudy that put this epitaph on the tombstone because it was a cry of grief, but also of great pride that her husband went over to save the Jews of Europe from Hitler's final solution. At great personal risk, she never remarried. She died very young. It was such a tragic story. But how I found all about the, out about this is that after I started researching, I Googled, it turns out that his namesake, who was born after him, lives three blocks from me where I live in Richmond Hill, Canada. He was the president of my synagogue. That was really creepy. So George Meltz, who lives here, because he was named after George, who died. And then my cousin's best friend, Isabel Meltz, was a niece of one of the brothers. There was 10 kids, three sets of twins. So I knew that it was too much of a coincidence to not be important. And someone up there was sending me a message saying, you have to write about this. And I did. And then people started saying, oh, what about my cousin? What about my uncle? What about my, my brother? What about my father? And I turned out that we had in our own family, nine people who served. And I didn't even know about it because nobody talked about it. And one was killed. So, and then they were almost all gone. So this is how it started. By that grave in Normandy of George Meltz, and he inspired me to write not just one book, but my second book, which came out last summer uh, about the Canadians contribution, Canadian Jews contribution to military history from 1760, when they first came to Canada and the Plains of Abraham to today. And it is such an amazing and really I, the words escape me to say what uh, you said humbling before. And as somebody who didn't live through that, but knowing what they were facing, the anti-Semitism at home, knowing that they had been pushing Canada and Canada's ignoring what's going on, the whole world's ignoring it. 
And then you have 39% of eligible Canadian men serving in the war in World War II. Think about that. It's four in 10. That's, that's such a huge number. And you write in double threat that in the Maritimes, where my wife Kathy is from in Canada, there was no need for a recruiting office because every last man of fighting age had enlisted already. They didn't need to give them the speech or try to convince them to come. And when you think about what they were facing, it's really amazing and terrible that this story was never told, that we forgot them. So after the war, how did their service help open those doors for Jewish Canadians that have been slammed in their face, that they had been considered less than full citizens, and now they had served and they were they were hopefully able to be recognized? Oh, wait, you went over there and did your bit. Well, it's a very excellent question. It needs to take a step back first, and we need to discuss what was it like for these soldiers and airmen and sailors as young students you know, or young, just out of high school or working, or some cases a little bit older, professionals as well, and farmers, you know, dentists, doctors, farmers, shippers and uh, clerks and, you know, truck drivers. Uh, what was it like for them to try to enlist? Because as you mentioned, um, no one was going to war in Canada to save a bunch of Jews. That was, Mackenzie King was the prime minister and he had very anti-Semitic um, minister of immigration. Canada shut its doors to Jewish refugees in the 30s. So even though a lot of immigrants like my own family, they came over in the 20s or the 10s in between the war, uh, World War I, World War II, or even a little bit before, when the, things started heating up with Hitler and anti-Semitism in Europe in the early 30s, 5,000 people were allowed in during the Second World War. The Dominican Republic took 10,000. And can you imagine how small they are? So um, it's one of the most uh, shameful um, stories of Canada and uh, Canadian history when we talk about immigration. Right now, Canada is having its own shame with the, of course, Indigenous graves and the children who were discovered. But that's a different story. I'm not an expert in that. But it's the same thing about uh, othering, othering of people, whether you're Indigenous or you were Black or you were Chinese or you were Jewish. They didn't want you in, in society, in, in schools. There were quotas. Uh, for Jews in universities. You couldn't go to medical school at McGill University. You couldn't go to medical school in, in Winnipeg uh, because they wouldn't take Jews. Um, there was, you know, golf clubs didn't take Jews. Yacht clubs didn't take Jews. You couldn't get jobs if you were a Jew. So many things they couldn't even, you couldn't even buy a property. You couldn't rent a cottage. There were off limits to Jews. And many, many supporters of fascism, especially in Quebec, but also out in the, um, in the prairies. Um, and there were spies for Hitler here and they knew where all the Jews lived because Hitler had a book and I can show it to you if you want a little bit later that he knew every city in Canada where the Jews were and how many there were. There were 168,000 Jews in Canada when the war broke out. Less than 1%, like nothing, because Canada had 11 million people at the time. So uh, when Jews wanted to enlist, many times they were turned away because the military was anti-Semitic. There was conscription in Canada, so you had to serve in the army. The Air Force and the Navy, of course, were volunteer. And so certain regiments were not taking Jews. No matter if you were the creme de la creme, if you had your own yacht, as Ben Dunkelman did, his family owned Tip Top Tailors, which was a very, it still exists today. It's a menswear uh, chain. And they had the contract to make the uniforms um, for the whole army. So they were doing very well. He went to Upper Canada College, which is a very, you know, prestigious private school in Toronto. And he had his own yacht and he went down to the Navy and he was, he was extremely patriotic. It was his duty. And his parents said, are you crazy? We need you here for the business. And he's like, no, I have to go. And for nine months, 
the Navy never called him back. Why? Because he was Jew. So he ended up joining the army and becoming the second most highly decorated Canadian Jew in World War II with a DCM and uh, a DSO. So, you know, he proved to self, but he couldn't even get accepted even because he even had his own yacht and he could sail. They were like, not interested. So this was a lot of regiments didn't take Jews. The Air Force was very picky. Um, there was only 500 Jews who got into the Navy because they were very British and very, very colonial. And they had all these prejudiced attitudes from, you know, the, the, the empire, the colonial empire that were translated into the Canadian versions. So as officers, very hard to win, uh, in the Navy. So why you said to me uh, what happened after the war is exactly what happened. And it took a few years, but those Jews that had served arm in arm with their comrades in the, you know, in the, in the battlefields, in the trenches, and not, we didn't call them foxholes, we called them slit trenches, uh, you know, in the cockpits, it, it, wherever they were, they forged bonds in the prison camps, especially in Japan, for example, um, they forged really important bonds with their non-Jewish friends and, and comrades. And so when they came home, they felt they belonged. So this was sort of a test of loyalty for Jewish Canadians. Many were immigrants, right? They had naturalizing papers, but they weren't, you know, citizens. They were all born in, in other countries, but they proved their medal. We had 200 who were awarded bravery medals, which is, you know, a lot. We had uh, about 450 who were killed in action. Canada stopped being as uh, narrow-minded and human rights legislation started. So they got rid of a lot of these, you know, restrictions. I will tell you one story, Dean, and that is about a prison camp, one of the worst, Hong Kong. Canadians went into Hong Kong in December of 1941 to garrison Hong Kong. Little did they know that December 25th, 1941, the army would invade and capture them all. And it was one of the most horrible debacles of Canadian history that 2,000 Canadians were captured and put in prison camps and then sent up to work slaves. You know, the Bridge Over the River Kwai movie. There were a lot of Canadians in the, and the doctor was Canadian. He was a Jew and he's in my book. Anyway, so there was a prisoner named Bill Allister and he was an artist, got captured. He was uh, Signals Corps and his bunkmate was a French Canadian guy who did not like Jews. And after three years in a prison camp with all the tribulations, I know you've seen that movie Unbreakable, course it was like that right he came back to Canada and he said my best friend is a Jew I hated Jews before the war and now he's like my brother this is what happened it's an opportunity that I don't think all of us would be willing to pick up and and take to be that forgiving I mean this is living the truths of the Torah this is living what we all tell ourselves also as Christians the Old Testament lessons forgive all of these things that whoever we are and obviously the French Canadians I would assume this man was a, a very big Catholic but he wasn't I would assume but you're not really living right. the lessons of it until you get stuck in that foxhole and that's a reason why a book like this you didn't do this but sometimes an author will pick me pitch me a book and say I, th I think this is interesting to everyone, but it's just about Jews or it's just about the Filipino women forced into sex slavery, speaking of right, the of Japanese empire at the time. And for me, I always look for a way to connect 
not just through me, but I think a good book, it's all our human story. For instance, you're talking there about Jews not being welcomed as refugees. Here they're escaping a genocide. For my grandparents, it was the same thing. They were escaping the Turkish genocide. So it's a lesson of World War II that we say so casually, but it's really there in the past that for everybody, they will come for you eventually. Somebody out there would like to see you wiped off the face of the earth, whoever you are. And when you have Hitler and Stalin, they're dividing up Poland, they're tearing it apart, they're they're tracking down, as you said, they have that list. So they're looking here for Jewish people that they can send, unfortunately, ultimately to the final solution. So you have them and you write so painfully there about immigration for Europe's Jews to Canada is all but closed. People said to Jewish soldiers in Canada before they were soldiers that you're just fighting, you want us to get in this war to save the Jews. But afterwards, I don't see in your book, Double Threat, that any of the Jewish people said, you don't care about us, you're just fighting for Canada, and I'm not serving and fighting for Canada. They sign up and they fight for Canada, and they're they're happy to have the Canadian war effort. So I wondered, what role yeah. did service play for Jewish Canadian soldiers in drawing attention to the horrors of the Third Reich once Ottawa starts really paying attention to it? Okay, it's a great question. At the beginning of 1939, 1938, when actually when Kristallnacht happened, um, the world kind of knew a little bit about what was the restrictions were on Jews and they were being persecuted, but nobody in Canada knew the extent, and I don't think anyone in the world, maybe FDR knew eventually, and that's a whole other story in the American context, but nobody could imagine the death camps, the crematoriums, the gassing, nobody could imagine that the, the, until when they were confronted with it, when people started escaping uh, in 1943, 44, after, you know, D-Day, okay, uh, when they came face to face with it. So they knew that their relatives were disappearing, they, they knew their relatives weren't uh, writing back. Uh, there were reports in the newspapers, there were emissaries, but um, Canadians had a, a a political action group called the Canadian Jewish Congress, which was sort of the, the main spokesperson, right, for Canada's Jewry at the time. And it was run by a bootlegger, Samuel Bronfman. And um, they consciously decided to not push anymore for the government to go to war and save Jews because it wasn't popular. So what they decided, and there's been papers written about it by Max Beer, what they decided to do was throw their full weight, men, money, uh, mobilization, um, into winning the war as quickly as possible, and that way save the Jews. But it wasn't a Jewish war. In Quebec, Adrien Arcan, who was a very powerful figure and a fascist, you know, said, c'est la guerre pour les Juifs, right? Like, we're not fighting for Jewish people. And there were uh, riots in the streets uh, because they were boycotting Jewish businesses. There were a lot of communists too, and Jews were communists in that time. A lot of Jews felt that that was the solution to their problems of the sweatshops and you know unemployment and discrimination was to, and you know of course communists was uh, was unpo unpopular, uh, the red threat. So the Jews just said, okay, we're going to just go and fight. There were five reasons why Jews went. First of all, it was the depression. And you could get four squares or three squares a day, not kosher. Uh, so you got $1.30 a day. And if you have a big family and you have two or three boys in the service and a girl or two, 
that helps the parents, right? And you put it all in a pot. Number two, they went for, mostly was patriotism, number one. Second of all was economics. People were poor. Um, thirdly was peer, peer pressure. And that's why in the Maritimes, as you mentioned, everybody served because it was too small to escape. You know, in the World War I, they gave you the white feather if you were a coward, right? In the Second World War, they called you a zombie and they beat you up. So nobody wanted to be called a zombie uh, and they, uh, they went. But they also had this, as you mentioned so correctly, this underlying mission, this double reason to go. But they kept it quiet. Uh, but they did talk about it in their interviews. Uh, you can see on their documents when you have their military records, when they write their letters home. For example, there was an Irish Regiment of Canada um, soldier who was from Toronto, David DeVore. And um, he wrote home to his parents, I'm going to get one German for each Jew that was, was killed. He wrote it in Yiddish. They did it to their parents. They did it to each other. They told each other why. They told their chaplains, the Jewish chaplains who went over, the rabbis. They wrote letters to their, you know, Jewish, you know, service clubs like B'nai B'rith that they were all members of back home. Um, one of the, the only Battle of Britain, Jewish ace, who was, he, he was killed in the Battle of Britain from Montreal. He's on the few, he's, he's the only few, named William Nelson. He was a Spitfire pilot and he shot down seven German planes before he was killed November 1st, 1940, he wrote home to his mother in Montreal and said, I thank God that I'll have a chance to, you know, pull the Nazis who are destroying our people, even if I don't survive. So that was there definitely, but it was quiet, quieter. Although there is a fellow from Toronto, his name was Steinberg, and he was a fighter pilot based in Alexandria. And he did 92 sorties with his hawker hurricane till he was shot down and instead of betty grable or marilyn monroe not not marilyn monroe but the old school you know women that were the pinup girls he or the, you know how many bombs he dropped he put a big star of david on the nose cone of his plane and it, it was it's an amazing amazing uh picture so they did show it proudly when it wasn't dangerous um but they also you know, they had to be careful, not just because their dog tags had Hebrew on them or H for Hebrew, which was a big problem, but also because they still felt faced a lot of garbage from within their own men wearing the same uniform, even overseas. People would say, oh, when we get back to Canada, we're going to send Hitler back to Canada and clean up all the rest of the Jews there. Like this is what people would hear. Or how come Hitler didn't get you? Things like this is what they would get. There's a lot of fights. There were a lot of uh, people going uh, into getting uh, punished because they would stand up for being Jewish. So there was a lot of that because they didn't want, uh, even the mostly British officers were uh, very prejudiced, but also you mentioned foxholes and there's a horrible story in Montela de Feza with the first special service force where the Canadians are, are climbing up these, these, these cliffs South of Rome, winter of 1943, turning 44 before you guys and us liberated Rome. Actually, the Canadians were liberating Rome, but you guys don't get the credit for it. Um, give you full credit. I wasn't laughing at the idea. I give you full credit. I know the Canadians were were they doing were definitely their bit there. Over there before. Yeah. They had anyway, all I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they had this red patch, you know, devils. Anyway, but the point about this 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 foxhole story was that there was this medic. Sam Borditsky was going up and down the mountain with the casualties. They were getting fired on by the, by the Germans who were at the top of this mountain. They were climbing the mountain in the middle of the winter. 
and you know they were getting rained upon by bullets so he tried to get uh you know once he came down he tried to get into a foxhole and this guy said i'm not letting you in you're a jew and his nco the sergeant said if you don't let this jew in i'm not let i'm not let you know i'm not coming in either and and you're you know so he stood up for him so there was that and then there was really really beautiful support for for the jewish uh, soldiers too so uh, yeah it was a mixed bag i interviewed 400 people for this book except for one every single one of them faced anti-semitism in the war every single one whether it was a small little story of getting called a Jew boy and your stomach kicked in when you're on your bunk to not getting promoted because you were a Jew, even though you were, you know, the biggest ace in the entire country to being ratted out. You're in Buchenwald as a spy and they're about to kill you. So lots of things happen. Throughout Double Threat, where there are so many ways that these Jewish soldiers are being, and Jews in Canada in general are being pulled. You mentioned the communists and that's chapter three in Double Threat is Jewish communists in uniform. And here Stalin is urging communists worldwide to oppose the war effort, but then Hitler turns on him and then they have to get pulled the other way again and really, really in danger so much. And good eventually because of their service and dedication, because they are willing to put down these slights or, or forgive and find a way to move on beyond those and join the larger war effort, they do end up winning this equality that they've been fighting for. They do get to bash down those doors that are closed in their faces. You mentioned about the dog tags and that they kept them quiet. And it reminded me of your great uncle, I believe it was, that he wore a Star of David, didn't he? And that, and there was another guy, Joseph Moskowitz, who he flaunted a Star of David tattoo in front of the Nazis, which seemed crazy to me. So what, what, do the, what does that tell us about, about this Jewish Canadian experience? You know, I guess it depends on the kind of job you had. If you were a frontline, you know, infantry soldier and, uh, in, you know, landing on the beaches of Dieppe and getting rained on with the, you know, enfilades of, uh, you know, bullets from the from the cliffs of Dieppe and you're getting massacred and you know you're going to go right into prison camp because they're, they're, if you didn't die, you were you were captured and sent into you know, stalags for, for three and a half years. Um, you rip your dog tags off and you throw them on the sand and you pretend not to be Jewish. Even though it's good that you mostly spoke Yiddish so you could understand what was going on. A lot of them did. But then some didn't. Some befriended um, Germans who were sympathetic and some people wouldn't take their rations if you got a special kosher box from like the Red Cross. They wouldn't eat them because they didn't want the Germans to know that they were Jewish. And others, Pinky Gom was uh, actually ended up being a, a cabinet minister in the Nova Scotia government. And he was basically starving to death in a camp, but he understood Yiddish. And uh, he became friends with a German officer uh, who called him Pinkele. <laughs> and, you know, he gave him bread and everything. And, and he kind of looked out for him. So there were mixed, mixed, as I said, it was, it was very uh, dangerous anyway, because um, some, cap some commandants did want to mistreat the Jewish prisoners. And there's a great story in the book about how uh, in one of these camps, the man of honor, so the, the head POW, who was not Jewish, heard that the commandant was going to march these 200 Jews. They were told to round themselves up and get ready to leave the camp in these death marches, right, which you know about. And he told the commandant, if you send these Jews on a death march, I will tell the Red Cross what you did. 
and it'll be a war crime and every single person will come after you. Like you're, you're going to be, we'll never let it die. You're, you're going to be executed. So he didn't send them. So there were some amazing heroism, but I want to get back to something that if you don't mind Dean, that you, you asked right. me and I didn't answer it right. You said, how did the Jewish soldiers expose their non-Jewish um, comrades to the truth of the Holocaust? And what had that happened at Bergen-Belsen and in many of these camps, there are so many stories about how non-Jewish and Jewish personnel worked together at Bergen-Belsen. There were a thousand Canadian personnel who had some role in cleaning the camp, not just liberating, but also, you know, helping the, the, the inmates who survived and fighting the typhus and getting them back to some kind of health. And it took months and, and they, a thousand of them worked on that camp. And a lot of the times they pilfered, liberated uh, supplies from the Quonset huts, you know, back on their base, or they took gasoline or they took blankets or whatever they could take to bring it, even though it was illegal and they thought it'd all be court-martialed, right? But so they all did see that together and it marked those thousand Canadians for life, even if they weren't Jewish, you know, and they, some of them could never talk about what they've seen or saw because it was, it was horrible. How do you describe that? Um, but there have been some, you know, accounts uh, of uh, heroic honor, honored because we've honored them, uh, non-Jewish um, flight lieutenants, squadron leaders who organized, you know, um, care packages. Uh, they went on picnics with the orphans. They brought stockings for the ladies uh, because that's what their humanitarian hearts told them was the right thing to do. I just want people to really go check it out at your website or go check it out at Amazon. You won't be disappointed. That idea of them keeping kosher is one of those things that I loved. And I find things funny and, and wartime even, right? You have to laugh always to go through. And you talk about a rabbi who a uh, soldier goes to him and says, there's pork in the rations. They'll give us bacon. What do I do? And the rabbi says, and you, you can hear it, everybody in New York, New Jersey area is a little bit Jewish. And my mother worked for 20 years at an Orthodox Jewish school here in New Jersey. So despite the Greek background, I'm very, very close and steeped in that. And the rabbi tells him, you're in the army, eat what they give you. And the guy is, is able to do it. But a lot of, there's a lot of trading going on, but little things like that are things that you wouldn't think about, that this sets them apart. As you said, the othering, that they're in part of the, they're in part of the greater Canada and they don't want to stand apart, but they do because of things like that. And then on the flip side, you have them speaking the Yiddish, which you mentioned. And I asked a rabbi who I had on the show, Miriam Udell, about that. She's a, an associate professor of Yiddish literature and language at Emory University. She wrote the book, Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. And she pointed out that that Yiddish did play a huge role in Canada. I told her about the book, Double Threat. And she wanted you to expand on that a little bit. So you mentioned it in passing there. What did that mean? How did that help them? Hey, they're, they're, they have a power now and you could, you could understand some of that German. So even those, um, those POWs who maybe hated Jews said, hey, th this guy's saving our town now. They can serve. So what did the Yiddish language mean to them? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's so amazing because one of them was my great uncle who lived in Carbondale, Pennsylvania, Uncle Al Singer. But we came up to Canada because my grandmother went to marry somebody. Otherwise, I would have been American. Anyhow, he arrested, <laughs> he, he used his German to arrest uh, Germans. 
uh, he spoke Yiddish. But for example, there's two things they did. Number one is they were able to, to uh, interpret, as you said. They were also able to, you know, say uh, things uh, like um, on, on patrols. So, for example, there was a soldier uh, from Toronto and he was his his lieutenant told him, OK, you go and you yell out into the cops of trees. Come out with your hands up or we'll shoot. The funny story is that he, he was so nervous that he said Scheisse instead of shoot. Scheisse means shit, right? So he said the Germans, if they were there, were probably killing themselves laughing and none of them came out. But luckily he said there weren't anyone there. And he said he turned beet red. And he says, oh, thank God my lieutenant didn't understand <laughs> instead of shoot. Hans Hoch, but then he said Scheisse instead. So that was funny. But I mean, a lot of them, that was the stories in individual patrols and actions or uh, my friend's parent uh, father and uh, was in uh, Germany and he was taking some German guards in their truck to another town where they were being interrogated and so what they did the Germans are sitting in the back of the truck and the two of them the Jewish guys from Canada are speaking in, in Yiddish about why don't we just stop off and kill them you know they reversed what the Germans used to do to the Jewish prisoners you know why don't we just kill them now and then we can go and have a beer or why do we have to wait six hours with these idiots you know and then germans are like <sighs> you know so they were doing things like that and then the germans they they spilled the beans on who the guy was looking for so they were scared and that was the story eric campbell's fa uh, father told me the other thing was that the, the raf wanted german speaking or yiddish speaking special operators for to operate what was called the cigar i don't know if you're aware of this it was 101 squadron very famous squadron because they had these like cigar radar things. it was basically to jam the german airplane radar and so you would have the german fighters coming over and the raf would send out these uh, bombers with an extra antenna which is why it was the number one uh, squadron that got so many casualties of all the other squadrons. This was the one that was the most casualties in the war because the Germans saw the second uh, antenna and they knew that the, the, the jamming radar was on there and they knew the special duty operator was on there. Um, but he would be uh, tasked to like yell stuff out in German, tell them the wrong directions, uh, scream, you know, whatever he could do or to, to try to get the German planes to go the wrong way. And yeah, that was a lot of the Canadian Jews were like that. Uh, uh, in the Air Force. Benny Yellen was one of them. You should read about him. It's an amazing story. Well, this book is an amazing story. You're enjoying it right now. My conversation with the author, Ellen Bessner. You heard there how many people she interviewed to distill those stories down to us. And as a journalist, she knows just what question to ask up there in Toronto. She's also the host of the CJN Daily podcast. Her book is Double Threat, Canadian Jews, the Military, and World War II. You can find her at ellenbestner.com and on all the major social media sites. Legendary Canadian journalist Peter Mansbridge, who earned the Order of Canada, writes, quote, Double Threat is an important book. More than 17,000 Jewish Canadians fought in World War II. Many never came home and instead lie in the ground of the Canadian War cemeteries across Europe with the Star of David carved into the stone above them. They fought the Nazis with a passion that allowed them to move past the anti-Semitism they had faced, first at home and then too often right beside them on the battlefield. Bestner's writing brings that part of our history out of the shadows. All of us owe it to those remarkable men and women to read their stories. Ellen, I wanted to bring up that 
quote by Prime Minister Mackenzie King there, the double threat that gives you your title. The praise he offers for those Jewish soldiers in, in double threat that they faced both threats at the same time. But you write that after that, even though that's some high-minded words, the contribution of Canada's Jewish community received very little attention. So how do you hope readers will take Peter Mansbridge's endorsement there to heart and ensure that these stories live on, that somebody's not relearning them again in 50 years, that they say, wow, this book, Double Threat, I, I forgot all about this. How do you hope readers will help keep their memories alive? Thank you for that question. The thing about the war is that Canada's role in the Second World War is always forgotten. Any movie you ever see, it's always the Americans, no offense, and the British, and they win all the wars. And we were never there. But we were there before you guys came in. So that's the first. In the Dam Buster story, in The Great Escape, The Great Escape was masterminded by Canadians. None of those guys there are true. In the movie, they, they were shown as the Americans, whatever. They were all Canadians, okay? And there's a great book by my colleague, Ted Barris, about the real story, who they all were. They were all Canadians. Canadians did amazing things in World War II for a country that was really small. It was a British colony and it didn't have an air force. It didn't have a Navy <laughs> at all until the second world war started and it started to ramp up. They trained every single British Commonwealth pilot came to Canada for training. Among those were the Jews. And, um, you know, we didn't have as many Jews as the Americans did. There were 1.5 million Jewish soldiers who served in World War II from Russia from USA, from Britain, that's a lot. Because wherever Jews live, they show loyalty to the country where they can be safe and find a safe home. So that's why Jews move to America. That's why Jews move to Canada, to be safe and flee anti-oppression you know, and pogroms in Eastern Europe, dating back to the 1880s. And they built society after that, right? And they became politicians and doctors and judges and you know vice president Kamala Harris is married to one and I mean all those things right and there's been you know high high offices and they won Nobel prizes six million were murdered can you imagine how the population would have been today if they had all lived and had children and grandchildren the contributions they would have made to the world and now when you go to these graveyards whether you're in Normandy or in Japan, uh, China, wherever you are, or Germany, Belgium, and you see a Star of David, they fought the same war as G.I. Joes and all the other, you know, the Tommies and whoever they fought, but they had a unique experience that was so difficult compared to non-Jewish, you know, white soldiers who had to fight. And that extra problem, that extra double threat that they faced, not just, it was an existential threat to their whole people for being exterminated, but also their own problems. Just being in the service was difficult, getting kosher food. They made them go to church parade for three years until somebody said, okay, that's fine. You can not go. If you didn't go, you were punished. So all these obstacles that they had to, and then they died for for freedom, for democracy, for other countries, and their own people were wiped out almost, um, and they were almost too late. I think that that record had never been told, and now at least the Canadian government has recognized it. Two years ago, they put up a beautiful exhibit on the Veterans Affairs website, used my book to do it. The government mentioned it in, in the House of Commons. 
And finally, after literally 75 years, the Jewish record is at least when people studied, because almost all these boys are gone and girls. My aunt was one of them. My uncle, they're all, all gone. There may be 13,000 Second World War veterans left in Canada, period, not just Jews. So when people are going and clicking on the internet and Googling, why is this gravestone here with a tombstone on it that has a, a Star of David? Who are these people? There's at least somewhere that they can learn about what my parents, my grandparents, and Jewish peoples, you know, all around the world did in a war that's trying to wipe them out. And I think if anybody out there figures this isn't their story, remember the debt that we owe them. They they were not in the back. Many of them were at home, as you mentioned, two, 280 Jewish women there. So everybody isn't doing the hardest job, but they all did a little piece. And without those pieces, and some of them had great heroism. You mentioned the second most decorated uh, Canadian Jewish soldier. You don't get that for doing nothing. And who's to say what these the, what the war would have been like if not for their sacrifice? You also mentioned them trading the Air Force. So I have to mention my interview. I went up to visit my in-laws in Brandon, Manitoba one year for Christmas. So you know Brandon, Manitoba is pretty cold then, but I still, for my listeners and viewers of the History Author Show, I went out to the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum. You could find that interview in the archives with John McNary. Just an amazing contribution and such a wise use of all that open space that you had in Canada to be able to bring people to Manitoba, teach them to fly. Many people come from all over the Commonwealth to learn to fly. And that was something Canada could contribute, whereas they, they weren't going to send a lot of men. Mackenzie King didn't want to didn't want to send over a bunch of people, just do whatever the British wanted. Canada comes into their own even more in this war that starts in the Great War. So that's something that is really a contribution that Canada makes. And we owe all of them, everybody who, who played some small bit there, helped defeat this great evil of the 20th century. I want to end with you where Double Threat begins, and that's with your dedication. First, you thank your husband and your two sons. And then you say the book is for your late uncle, Leo Gutman, a Royal Canadian Air Force veteran who may very well have trained there in Brandon, Manitoba. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, did, I didn't ask you that. A little bit farther. He was in okay. northern Saskatchewan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So here, these are all. Look, you know, there was this is a story, you know, well, talking about it. There were two kinds of veterans. Those who never talked about it and those who didn't shut up about it. And mostly they were the first kind. Uncle Leo never talked about it. I asked him when he was 94, he passed away a few years ago. And I asked him, you know, what was your life like? And even his kids had, just, had never heard about it. Um, and he died right after, he, you know, a couple of months after he gave me the interview. So, you know, he said, I was lucky. I came home with all my legs and all my arms and I didn't lose any, you know, parts of my body. Okay, he lost his hearing because he was working in the uh, air crew. I considered myself lucky. I wanted to put my uniform behind me. I wanted to make a living, get married to my Auntie Lane, have a family and move on with life. I was lucky. Most of the guys I know didn't come back or they didn't come back whole. And I think that in those days with the PTSD, you know, nobody knew what to do with these people who were traumatized. So um, I think most veterans were like that. And they were simple people who went. He was a, a peddler. Uncle Leo came from, uh, his family came from Russia. They moved to a farm in Trochu, Alberta. They were not farmers, okay? They moved there anyway, because that's how you could escape Russia. They settled the west of Canada. The land was terrible. 
So they moved to Montreal and he was a peddler. He used to go and sell like appliances on consignment, like pick up a 10 cents every week from his customers, you know, from the big department store, simple man. And yet he spent, you know, five and a half, six years overseas with the Air Force and he saved Canada and the world. And we owe these people a huge debt. You know, everyone has their own stories and everybody has their own war stories, but um, that's who, it was a nation of volunteers and they all went as volunteers overseas. And that's something that people don't know. This book is just great on so many levels. You meet these men and women and you want to be a better person yourself. You want to sit up a little straighter in your chair and you especially want to go ask your living relatives or even now the their children or if there's a box somewhere in the attic that was grandpa's old stuff or grandma's when she was on the home front and she was facing a triple threat because a lot of them faced misogyny also when they had to go oh, yeah. and, and contribute to the war effort. I hope people will take double threat and be inspired. Make sure those stories aren't lost. If any of us have an Uncle Leo out there and you say, you know, he talked a lot to his father about the war or he had a box of stuff that I think we were going to throw away. I, I hope that people will do what you did. Start down that road. Send it to me. Don't throw it out. Absolutely. Do not throw it out. There's there's so many people that have those stories and it's almost too late. So, you know, it's worth it to hear. And they want to unpack it now. If they're still alive and they're able to, they want to unpack it. Ask again. Don't ever think that the next time you ask, don't nag, but you ask those questions. I did that with my own mother who survived as a very little girl in the Battle of Britain, because once those memories are gone, the stories unfortunately die with us. So thank you so much, Ellen Bessner, for telling this story today, all of these stories in double threat, for sharing these forgotten Canadian Jewish people that are forgotten no more. And I hope that your book will will continue to sell and end up on people's shelves that people will make sure that their contribution to freedom is never again dropped into the shadows and forgotten. I wish you the best of luck with the book. I hope everyone north and south of the 49th parallel will pick up a copy and also everyone around the globe, if you're watching or listening, please do do the same. You'll be inspired and you'll be a better person. And I know I'm a better person having read this book so will you be. Thank you so much, Ellen, for all your hard work and for spending time with me today. It's been a privilege. Thanks a lot. Again, the book is Double Threat, Canadian Jews, the Military, and World War II. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying books through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. And that means we can continue to introduce you to forgotten figures from the past that were all enriched by getting to know a little bit. My sincere thanks to Ellen Bessner, not just for her time today, but for the mission that she accomplished here in this book. She brought back these forgotten heroes who did their bit to defeat the 20th century's great evil, despite being bested by bigotry at home and refusing to give in. They had to fight a war on two fronts, and they really were facing a double threat. Remember to check out our guest at CJN Daily, that's her podcast from the Canadian Jewish News, and follow her at ellenbessner.com and on all the social media sites, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can find me on those as well, and also on our YouTube channel, where I hope you'll subscribe for future conversations about the people who shaped our world. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. 
I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or wherever you enjoyed this program. Until our next trip into the past together, on behalf of Ellen Bessner, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.